0: Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 33, beginning at verse 12 and reading through the end of the chapter. And then our sermon passage this morning is John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. So we've got our scripture reading, Exodus 33, 12 to 23, and our sermon passage, John 1:14 to 18. Brothers and sisters, this is the very word of God. This is the Lord who speaks to you, his people. His voice is full of grace and truth. This is his word for you today. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, Please show me now your ways, that I might know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he, that is the Lord, said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your, in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people in the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, You cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by, then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now turning to John's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning at verse 14 and reading through verse 18. no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired and and inerrant word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, your word in and of itself is a blessing unto us. It's a gift to the world and especially to those who have ears to see, ears to hear and eyes to see. But we do pray for your blessing upon us, Lord, because we find your word, at least in parts, to be difficult for us to understand. We know that not all in your word is alike plain. Some is easier to understand, some is clearer, and other parts of your word are more difficult. And so we ask for your spirit to please guide us. We pray that he who is the author of all scripture, that he would help us with his word's interpretation. We pray, dear Lord, that you would be a blessing to your people now as your word is preached. That you would give us understanding. That you would be with the one who preaches your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, perhaps you haven't given a great deal of thought to this. And if not, that's okay. There's no problem with that. But you might know a little about the Apostle John, uh, who 's regarded as among one of the youngest of christ 's disciples when Jesus was alive and when he walked and when he was in his public ministry, john is described in his Gospel as being able to outrun Peter and make it to christ 's tomb on the day of resurrection and so there 's a generally held belief that John lived probably longer than any of the other disciples, any of the other apostles and What that means for us as we seek to understand and interpret scripture is that if the gospel of John or the book of Revelation, if it was written before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, then we recognize that these are prophetic accounts that John is writing. If it's written after those, then he is in some ways speaking about history that's already taken place, events that have already taken place. And this morning, our passage uh, it does bear upon that, the history, when John wrote this gospel. It does, it does play a, a, an effect, it does have an impact on our understanding to a certain degree, but not to a great degree, not this particular passage. And the way that we understand this is, as we read this, uh, John's writing, if he's writing prior to the destruction of the temple, then he is writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit who has given him insight into what is going to happen, and he is preparing his people, the people to whom he writes, he's preparing them for the eventual destruction of the temple. What's going to happen in a matter of years, depending on when he wrote. You see, even the destruction, the destruction of the temple impacted even Christians, because the earliest Christians were Jews. And the earliest Jewish Christians, before the destruction of the temple, they worshipped at the temple. They went to the temple steps. They met outside. They went inside. But if he wrote after the destruction of the temple, then he is telling his people, those who read his letter, he's telling them how they are to behave now, how they're to conduct themselves now, how they're to understand their relationship with Christ and how they are to worship. He's preparing them either beforehand or helping them after the fact, after the destruction of the temple, to know what true worship is. Now, we've seen at other times, as you read through the scriptures and particularly Uh, The Old Testament, as you reach the end of the Old Testament, you read about the accounts of what God's people did in exile, how they handled being without the temple when it was destroyed. We've seen how the Jewish people and the early Jewish Christians dealt with the loss of the temple. When that happened, especially when the first temple was destroyed, they focused on uh, synagogue worship. They did what they did back before the Israelites were in captivity, before they built the temple and they worshiped in the tabernacle. In synagogue worship, the main part of worship did not consist of sacrifice, which was the main element of worship in the temple. In synagogue worship, the Jewish people focused on the law of God. Now, in our passage this morning, John the Apostle seems to be concerned about either the coming destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, or if you hold to a later date for when John wrote this book, the destruction of the temple that had already taken place. And one way or another, John's intended recipients of this book already were or would be dealing with the absence of the temple in which they could worship. John is answering a major question that Christians will have or already do have. What are they to do about worship when the temple's gone? Now, you remember the first three verses of the Gospel of John, those opening verses, they take us back to the dawn of creation. And now in this passage, John is taking us back to somewhere else, not as far back as creation, but he's taking us back to the time following the exodus from Egypt when God tabernacled among his people at Mount Sinai. And so the answer that John provides to the question of where worship in the light of the destruction of the temple, the answer isn't synagogue worship. It's not worshiping in the tabernacle, it's worshiping in In the tabernacle that is Jesus Christ. They don't revert back to what they had done previously when they were in exile or in the absence of temple. They worship in Jesus Christ, who is their tabernacle, who is their shelter. Well, this is the the thought that I want you to hold before you as we work our way through the sermon today. God's only Son, the eternal Word, became flesh so that we might behold His glory and worship Him. God's only Son, the eternal Word, became flesh, so that we might behold His glory and worship Him. The sermon is divided into two parts, of human flesh and divine glory, verses 14 and 15, and the second part, seeing Jesus is seeing God, verses 16 to 18. Of human flesh and divine glory, that's part one, verses 14 to 18, of seeing Seeing Jesus is seeing God, verses 16 to 18. So let's look at the first section of the sermon of human flesh and divine glory. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now how do we get that John here is making some kind of a reference back to the Old Testament, back to the time when Moses had led his people out of Egypt and when they're traversing, when they're walking about in the wilderness. Well, verse 14 gives us those clue, that clue. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Before we get to, to how we understand the background to this, we need to understand a couple of things about this verse, verse 14. This first phrase, the Word became flesh, that first phrase is offensive to Jewish people. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. One Jewish scholar said that the idea that God would take on human form was repulsive to Jews. He wrote, it contradicts our concept of God as being above and beyond the limitations of the human body and situation. In the Jewish conception of who God is, there's no possibility for Him coming down to us and taking on human flesh. And this repulsion is not so different from the ancient Greek philosophical distinction between the material world and the spiritual world. That that philosophical idea that led to Gnosticism, which is a heresy of the early church. They believe that the human body belongs to the material world, which according to one ancient philosopher was a mass of evil. And so when John writes, the word became flesh and dwelt, dwelt among us, he's offending both Jew and Gentile here. But his words are offensive to modern ears, to postmodern sensibilities as well. Because the Word becoming flesh, the Son of God coming into our world as a baby, growing into a man, it demonstrates need on our part, doesn't it? If we didn't need a Savior, there would be no need for a Savior to come. And so, why would God take such a drastic measure of sending His only Son to be born of a woman? The birth of Jesus Christ contains within it the inescapable fact that human beings need to be saved. We need to be rescued. That's why so many people spend so much time trying to paper over this time of year and the meaning behind it. And so just as repulsive as the idea of God taking on human form is to Jews, so is the idea that we are unable in an ultimate sense to take care of ourselves. Human beings rebelliously thumb our noses at God and say, we don't need any help. We can manage just fine on our own, thank you very much. We don't need you. But in refusing to acknowledge that God took up human flesh and dwelt among us, we refuse to see that man's disobedience to God threw us all into a state of sin and misery from which we cannot escape. We can't extract ourselves from this estate. And so as a result of our parents' Uh, our first parents' disobedience, we are all sinful through and through. We're all in desperate need of rescuing. And God, having made a covenant in which he promised to save a people for himself, was willing to do what it took to save those people. And that meant that in the fullness of time, God sent his one and only son, his only begotten son, to be born in human flesh. As Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11 shows, the eternally divine Son took up human flesh. He added to His divine nature a human nature. And so God the Son was enfleshed. And John says that the enfleshed Son of God, the Word, dwelt among us. Now here's where we get to this Old Testament Exodus background for what John is writing in our passage this morning. Another way of putting it that will help us better understand what John is getting at here is that the word tabernacled among us. The word that John uses here that's translated in the ESV and other English translations as dwelt is the Greek word that means to set up a tent. But this Greek word is used in the the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, wherever the word tabernacle is used in Hebrew. And so one commentator wrote, Just as God tabernacled with his people in the wilderness, that is in the Sinai desert, God's word tabernacled among the witnesses of the new exodus accomplished in Jesus. God is once again dwelling with his people, just as he did when he led them out of, of Egypt. Now that's the point that John is making here. His tabernacle is a fleshy tabernacle. Which means that God dwells with his people now in a way that he never had before. Whereas God's Old Testament people never saw him, even when they worshipped him in the tabernacle and the temple, even though they saw the, the cloud during the day and the pillar of fire at night, they never saw God. But John can now write, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John says we have seen God. And we read part of Exodus 33 just prior to reading the sermon passage. And it's one, of, it's one commentator's contention and I think a convincing one that Exodus 33 and 34 provide John's background for what he writes in these verses. In the passage that we read from Exodus 33, God says to Moses in verse 20, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Now John is saying in our passage that you have now seen God's face because you have seen His one and only Son, the Word, who became flesh and tabernacled among us. You have beheld His glory, which is full of grace and truth. Now the background to the phrase full of grace and truth is Exodus 34, verses 5 and 6, which says this, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. How is it possible that John might be referencing this passage in Exodus 34 when he writes glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth? Well, the first clue we get of a relationship between these two passages is God descending in the cloud to Mount Sinai and standing there with Moses. This cloud that descended upon the mount was the Shekinah, or the glory cloud of God. John is talking about seeing God's glory in verse 14 and how Jesus has made His glory manifest and that John and other eyewitnesses, John the Baptist and other eyewitnesses, saw the glory of God. The passage in Exodus 34 is about Moses having asked and now being able to see God, though only his back. For as he said in chapter 33, no man can see me and live. And so John is saying that Moses is a great prophet and leader of Israel as he was, only was able to see the back of God, not his face. But Jesus' disciples, however, saw the fullness of God's glory. They looked upon the face of God, as it were. But then John, the apostle, makes the point that John the Baptist saw it first. The second clue that the background is Exodus 33 and 34 is in verse 14, full of grace and truth. It's essentially a translation at the end of Exodus 34, verse 6, abounding with steadfast love and faithfulness. The connection between steadfast love and grace ought to be readily evident. But truth is connected to faithfulness if we understand truth as being true to your word. And God is. He is true to his word. He's true to his word because he is truth itself. And the Apostle John has already referenced John the Baptist earlier in verses 6 to 8, the passage right before our sermon passage today. And he said there that there was a man named John who came to bear witness about the light so that all all might believe in the light. And in verse 15, he now speaks of John as carrying out his duty of bearing witness. The English Standard Version has verse 15 as a parenthetical statement, which contains a quote of John the Baptist quoting himself. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. It's a confusing statement, but think about this. Chronologically, John the Baptist's cousin, Jesus, came after him. He was born after John the Baptist. But Jesus' public ministry also came after John's. John started his public ministry before Jesus did. So Jesus truly did come after John the Baptist. But as John says, Jesus ranks before him. John the Baptist understands implicitly what John the Apostle had to state explicitly at the beginning of the book. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Like Moses who witnessed God's glory before anyone else, John the Baptist witnessed the glory of God in the flesh before anyone else. And that brings us to the second and the final point of our sermon today. Seeing Jesus is seeing God. Verse 16 says, And from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. Now, there are times in our lives when it feels like we know only grief upon grief. that piles up upon us. We should always remember, but especially in those times of grief, that Jesus is full of grace and truth, as verse 14 says. And from this fullness, he gives us grace upon grace. Jesus is an overflowing fountain of grace. The resources of His grace are inexhaustible. The well of His grace will never run dry. You can go to Him again and again, not needing to worry about being turned away empty-handed. And so for those of us who have experienced grief upon grief, remember that Christ Jesus gives grace upon grace. That He never tires of you asking Him for more. Verse 17 sets up a contrast between Moses and Jesus Christ, both of whom are mentioned by name for the first time here. John writes, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. From Moses, we received the law, just as from Moses we received the history of the creation of the world, to which John has already pointed at the beginning of the gospel. But from Jesus, the creator of the world, we receive not the law, but grace and truth. But Moses and Jesus are not equal opposites in this contrast. This one commentator writes, Christ is greater than Moses as the one whom Moses saw was greater than Moses. In the fourth gospel, the glory witnessed by Israelite prophets was that of Jesus himself. And so Moses beheld the glory of Jesus, even from the back. Even though John the Apostle is contrasting Moses with Jesus, we must remember that it is Moses and John the Baptist who are most alike here. They are essentially equals in this equation between Moses of the Old Testament and the New. Moses and John the Baptist were both witnesses to God's glory. But John's purpose in verse 17 is to show how much greater Jesus is than Moses. He's seeking to convince those who believe that there was no greater person than Moses in the history of Israel, that one greater has come. Through Moses came the law. And the law stood huge in the lives of Jewish people. It still does. But through Jesus, who as the eternal word is the embodiment of the law, came grace and truth. And our passage ends with this statement in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. We cannot see God the Father, who is Spirit. Nor for the same reason can we see God the Holy Spirit. But we can and we will behold His Son. Jesus Christ was physically, visibly present when he walked the earth. And he is physically and visibly present even now at his Father's right hand in heaven. And those who have gone on before us to be with him, they behold him. With spiritual eyes in the fullness of his glory, they behold him. In the incarnation, he was 100% divine and 100% human, and he continues to be so even now. And when he returns to judge both the living and the dead, he will still be fully God and fully man. And at that time when Jesus returns, we will behold his true glory. In all of its divinity and all of its humanity, we now see as through a glass darkly. But then we will truly see. We will behold his glory full of grace and truth. It's significant that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, when he came in the flesh, he came bearing not the law. He came bearing grace and truth. And it's astonishing that though the eternal word who came in the flesh came bearing grace and truth, so many persist in their refusal to believe in him. There are those who believe and there are those who don't. There are those who will not believe, who refuse to believe. God's one and only Son has given the right to all who believe in Him, in His name, to become the children of God. And as His children, you behold His glory as you worship Him. No, you don't yet see Him face to face. But you have a sure promise that you will. And because of that, you spiritually behold Him when you gather together to worship Him. Those who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ will not receive grace and truth from him. They would rather perish, it seems, than bend their knee in faith and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. But to all who do believe in the name of Jesus Christ, you will receive, you have received, you will continue to receive grace upon grace. There's no end to his exhaustless reservoir. Out of this grace that you have received... You can gratefully bow down and worship your Lord, your King, your God. He's given you that ability. And you can do it even in the midst of trial, even in the midst of sorrow, even in the midst of living in a curse-filled world, which tells you that you have no business worshiping a God, any God, much less the true and living one. Brothers and sisters, you have been given grace upon grace And you will, you will look upon the face of your Savior. You will behold Him in the fullness of His glory. And that is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, what a blessing it is to know that we will behold You in the fullness of Your glory. But we're thankful that in a spiritual sense, We behold you even now, that we know you, though not fully, we know you truly. We are grateful that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. That your word gives us all that we need to know for salvation. All that we need to know for living life in this fallen world. Lord, we pray that we truly would behold you face to face. We pray that you would protect us. We pray that you would guard us. We pray that you would cause us to walk with you all of our days. We pray, dear Lord, for those who may be straying, who are struggling in their faith, who are asking questions, who are doing so perhaps from a skeptical standpoint. We pray, dear Lord, that you would please bless them with grace and truth. We ask, O Lord, that you would cause us by your Spirit to stand firm in the faith. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.